Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We are coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Marlene Even. There's no doubt local news has been under threat in recent years. We've seen job cuts and regional newspapers close down. But amidst the news deserts, Australia has seen numerous independent local news services sprout and bloom in communities. Often these services are created by experienced journalists building a small team to bring news to their own communities off their own backs. This, of course, doesn't come without its own challenges. So, in response, the Judith Nielsen Institute and the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia established LENA, the Local and Independent News Association, to support hyperlocal news. In this episode, we ask what role do these hyperlocal news services have in Australian media? To discuss this and more, I am joined by Claire Stutchberry, Executive Director of Local and Independent News Association. Welcome to Fourth Estate, Claire. Thanks, Marlene. Great to be here. And we are also joined by Mark Phillips, founder, publisher and editor of Brunswick Voice, an independent news project in the inner north of Melbourne. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Marlene and Perry Strathern, Managing Editor of Murray Bridge News, an independent local news service in South Australia's Murray Lands. Welcome, Perry. Hey, folks. Thanks for having me. So let's jump in. Claire, what's the actual difference between local news and hyper-local news? I think local news can mean... Local news can mean a lot of things depending on the context that it's used in. But hyperlocal news is generally focused on a very specific community. And so in the hyperlocal setting, we're talking generally about a really specific geographic environment. And often that can be like a subset of, of suburbs that might be a five to 10K sort of radius in a suburban type of area, or it might be a particular town or region that something is focused on. It's mainly describing what a community, I suppose, is. And hyperlocal is a way of describing the community that that particular publisher is serving. And Perry, you were a senior journalist for your local commercial paper. What happened in 2020 that led you to create your own independent news service? Well, the pandemic arrived, I guess, in a context in which local news around Australia was already suffering decline, right? Um, the company I worked for was Fairfax Media, the former Fairfax Media, now Australian Community Media, and it had suffered significant revenue losses and staff cuts over a number of years. We lost about 80% of our staff at the newspaper before I left. Uh, in 2020, obviously, COVID happened. The newspaper was shut down for at least three months, and I, at that point, took the opportunity to strike out on my own and try something new. Well, even though the paper where I worked had shut down for at least three months, we weren't sure exactly how long, uh, the community still had a need for information, right? Uh, people, there was a pandemic going on, and there are still all the everyday things happening, particularly here in South Australia, where I am. You know, there are still local government meetings, there are still police things happening, there are still 
community events and consultations and important events in people's lives as well that needed and deserved to be reported on. So I looked to continue meeting that community need in much the same way I had been at the newspaper, just under my own steam and my own masthead. Mark, you established the Brunswick Voice last year in North Melbourne. Did you have a similar experience to Perry? What drew you to create your own news service? Uh, similar and different. Um, similar in that uh, same same story, uh, Brunswick, well, we used to have, I think, three weekly free newspapers delivered every week, uh, and they gradually became basically glorified uh, real estate advertising supplements uh, with very little news. And then um, when the pandemic hit, the last of them stopped publishing and we were told it was going to go online, but it didn't go online. But where, so very similar, there was a community gap. Um, we're still, at, you know, a need for local information, there's local council. There's a um, fascinating diverse range of stories in my local community. Um, so similarities with Perry, but the difference is that I'm coming from it as a consumer of news. I, I mean, I have a long journalistic background, but I wasn't and aren't uh, working full-time as a journalist. It's a citizen journalism project. Uh, and I'm coming at it from uh, a reader audience viewpoint and identifying that I wasn't being told and couldn't get information about what's going on in my community. Uh, I had the skill set to do it. So I suppose what grew out of a, a, a lockdown project has become something um, ongoing as a labour of love. And I think that I see journalism uh, as being a public service, number one. Um, and I don't think in recent years, the commercial media companies that were delivering newspapers to my area really saw it has been a, a, a public service. There was more, uh, a, you know, a, a continuing revenue stream. And when that revenue started to dry up, they were no longer interested. But uh, people here need news and they want news and they want to be able to communicate and connect with each other. And Claire, I'm going to ask you about Lena in a second. But first, I want to know if the stories like Perry and Mark's are becoming more common, where journalists see a news gap within their community and they decide, stuff it, I'll, I'll make my own. Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing that across the country in different spaces. And I think where, you know, uh, where newsrooms have been shutting down, particularly in regional areas, uh, it's where it's been most noticeable, but also in suburban areas as well. Uh, people are stepping up into what is identified as a need for their local communities. And so we're seeing that kind of story being replicated in lots of communities across the country, probably um, sped up a little bit or highlighted a little bit by uh, the pandemic in the last couple of years and that need for very specific information within local communities. Um, but that's been across the case with a whole range of different topics um, over multiple years. So we're really seeing uh, what's happening now in that space is kind of the green shoots of the journalism industry in, um, you know, where one kind of industry is in decline, there's this opportunity to be serving communities in different ways. And I suppose the counteract to that is why can't other existing community structures fill this news gap? Harry, I'll go to you first. I think it's not necessarily that legacy media, for want of a better term, are unable to fill the information gap, but I think that small, nimble, responsive, and particularly locally owned news outlets are perhaps better equipped to fill those gaps. If a community feels like they have literal ownership of an, a masthead, ideally, then 
you have a much closer relationship. People people don't get burned by the loss of staff or the loss of print editions per week. And you're able to start from a, I guess, from a fresh and respectful viewpoint where you understand that it's a two-way street between a community and its news outlet. And I think that having a decision-making capacity here in Murray Bridge, where I am, makes it a lot easier to respond to community needs than when decisions are being made perhaps three or four or five levels up a company in Adelaide or Sydney. And Mark, what about you? Well, look, um, I don't necessarily blame um, News Corp or Fairfax or ACM for shutting down those papers. They've got a responsibility to shareholders. Um, But when you're making decisions in New York about a global company, I think that uh, a little uh, newspaper in the suburb of Brunswick in Melbourne uh, it's pretty low down the ladder for them. So I think that, the, like Perry says, it's really about um, communities taking ownership of their own um, media and being embedded in the community, having that trust within your own community and being part of it. Uh, and I just don't think that um, we're ever going to see uh, big legacy media companies come back to doing hyperlocal news. So I think it's really up to communities to do it. And I know that some people have talked about Facebook filling the, filling the void. Look, there's, there's um, Facebook, uh, Good Karma Network pages and all sorts of things in our community, but they don't do news. And um, they're very heavily controlled about what kind of things you can put up there, um, apart from, you know, furniture to give away and recipes and things like that. They don't do news. In fact, they discourage uh, debate quite often about what is um, really going on in the community because it's all about the Good Karma. So um, I think uh, bringing journalistic instincts uh, to what I do, uh, even if it's on a voluntary or, or citizen journalism basis, uh, is serving a value to the community. Uh, but as I say, it's um, it's all about having the trust and the knowledge of being part of your community. And um, you just can't, uh, in this day and age, expect uh, multi-billion dollar companies to continue to um, just provide, unfortunately, as a public service, much as we'd like to. So it's up to us to do it. And Claire, I'll put that question to you again. Why can't other existing community structures fill this news gap? Well, I would echo what Perry and Mark are saying there around uh, the trust in being by and for the community. I don't think that can be underestimated in the news space and in and in the audience space as well in terms of people wanting to feel like uh, the, their sources of news are trustworthy and understand the area and the environment that they're in. I think that um, there's a strong alignment between what a lot of hyperlocal and independent uh, publishers are doing in comparison to with what some community radio stations are doing. So I think in that kind of space, there's some uh, comparative kind of examples in the community media sector more broadly. But I think um, when we're thinking about what community community media can do, and I would think that hyperlocal and independent publishers are very connected with their local communities, as we've been hearing from Perry and Mark there, that um, that's the element really that makes it stand out significantly against any other kind of um, media source. Also, there's the element of being held to editorial standards and actually publishing public interest news, which makes it different to other platforms like social media. And Claire, you are the executive director of LENA, which is Local and Independent News Association, which is relatively new. Why was LENA created? Uh, Lena was created mainly out of a need for um, hyperlocal and independent publishers to be represented in the policy space in some ways. There wasn't anybody who was speaking on behalf of 
what are um, emerging and, and quite small local publications in uh, comparison to kind of the mainstream media space. So there was identified amongst a group of publishers that it would be useful to have an industry association that kind of keeps an eye on uh, policy developments that represents their interests in different spaces and that acts as a support network. There hasn't there hadn't been previously kind of a collective in that space. So there's potential efficiencies to be gained from working together uh, from people who are doing quite similar work in their own communities around the country and are often doing that with a fairly small amount of staff and without a support network that other kind of media networks enjoy. So Lena, I guess, was formed to try to provide that support and also to provide that voice for people who um, otherwise have been doing that work in quite isolated environments in many, many instances. And I can imagine having that support network is very helpful when a lot of these services are one-person crew or two-people crew. Um, is that the case for both you, Mark, and Perry? Is it a very small team running these services? Um, well, I'll jump in first. It's a very small team. In fact, I think if you're going to talk about hyperlocal, I'm about as hyperlocal as they come. Um, but I, I, it's been actually quite encouraging because... As uh, I've been progressing, people have just been contacting me and saying, I'd like to write a story about this. Or I'd like, And this is a lot of what I really wanted to do in the first place was not to make this like a platform for my own um, journalism or to stay in the game myself so much as to be able to give the community a chance to have, have a voice, which is why I called it Brunswick Voice. So um, the more uh, people who come forward like that, I can't, um, obviously, um, I'm not paying myself and I don't. Um, have any budget to pay them but um, I think people see the value of doing that but um, yeah I think these will be pretty lean and mean operations for quite some time. Murray Bridge News um, is is a commercial operation uh, by contrast I don't pay myself an amazing wage um, but I, it is myself and I have an offsider a journalist Vicky who works with me three days a week at present I'm hiring someone in a revenue role who will be three days a week as well I'm hopeful that a community of Murray Bridge's size, kind of 20,000 people, will be able to support, you know, two to three staff members on a local news outlet, particularly without the overheads of print, which we don't have. We're an online outlet. It's interesting in Australia that there isn't a space for local publishers to be non-profit very easily. This is one of the issues, obviously, that Lena has been formed to start having a look into as legislation evolves over the coming years. In markets like the United States, the future of hyperlocals is non-profit. Folks are able to take donations, they're able to do fundraising and things like that. Revenue streams that just aren't available to local news publishers in Australia because the legislation hasn't caught up to where the industry is at. So hopefully in future that evolves, but for now, we'll do it on a commercial basis and I'd love to transition to a non-profit in future, but that's that's a way away, I think. Marlene, I probably just add to what um, Perry and Mark were saying there in that in that context where um, they are the small teams that they were describing just there, um, and in the context of uh, seeing what's happening on the international stage, I suppose with um, hyperlocal news and and independent news more broadly. Is that what Lena is setting up to do is to be able to be having those conversations with government and with varying policymaking forums while. Mark and Perry and, and others like them around the country are doing the work of reporting in their local communities. It's very hard to do both those things at once when there is so much happening. And so um, Lena's role really is to try to, as much as possible, free up 
like local and independent publishers to focus on the on serving their communities while we help out with things like the business side of things, you know, more so than the reporting side of things and the and keeping eyes on policy spaces and um, evolving those conversations moving forward. And I find it really interesting that you both, that you all mentioned this kind of idea of a two-way street between the news service and your community providing both stories and information. I think one thing I really admired from hyperlocal news is during a crisis situation or a, a big event, so for example, um, a natural disaster, flooding, that you've got these local communities then also contacting you and saying, look, this is what's happening in my street. Can you report on this? And you're getting all this information coming through, which is a fantastic gathering of resources. Um, how do you go about doing that and also trying to fact check that as a small team? Uh, Perry, I'll go to you. It's funny you mentioned that. I had um, The best example I've had is that it was New Year's Day a couple of years ago. I was literally walking down the street pushing a pram and a car pulled up next to me and said, oh, you're that Perry guy, right? Oh, you should go around to this street and go around to this house because a tree's fallen on the roof in the storm last night. It was dreadful. And so people just come out of the woodwork with, with their story tips and it's wonderful. Um, it's interesting that you talk about the language of news service versus news outlet. I've always described my Ridge News as a news service because news needs to be a service, right? You know, it's it's not news doesn't just pour out of a pipe somewhere and here, please consume my news. It's a it's a service to the community. And I think if you're conscious of that at all points, then you know people will be willing to come back to you with with their tips, with their ideas, their photos and stories, because they appreciate that what their friends and family might be interested in in the community, maybe the wider community will be interested in too. Yeah, I think um, you do have to be a bit careful um, about just saying to people, you know, this is, you can just publish anything. I'm not going to like go down that path. Um, and um, you still have to apply editorial um, control and um, proper journalistic instincts to what um, you do publish. But um yeah, um, news tips and people actually wanting to contribute. Um, that's, I think, I think in a way what we're doing uh, because we're so much smaller and starting up is that these issues that big media companies have been grappling with for the last 25 years since the rise of social media and online about audience engagement, feedback, um, democratisation of the news, which are really difficult things to do when you've got a newsroom with 100 journalists and you know, circulation of a couple hundred thousand or whatever it is, um, we can, in a way, um, do that from from day one. And uh, because we're part of the community, we can um, we can encourage and foster that uh, approach. So um, there's some really interesting experimentation taking place too. I think, or innovation potentially to take place at hyper local level as well. And let's talk about one of the big hurdles for local and independent news: revenue. So there's been criticism that during the news media bargaining code negotiations, it was often the independent news services that missed out. Is that a fair criticism, Claire? Yeah, I think it is a fair criticism um, for many hyperlocal and independent news services. I think, you know, part of uh, what happened through the development of the mandatory news bargaining code um, helped inform the development of Lena and identify the need for it because uh, the views of hyperlocal and independent publishers weren't necessarily being represented 
in uh, those policy discussions weren't necessarily part of the, the picture or the debate. And now we're going through a review process looking at how that code works. And we're seeing a lot of data come out at the moment around you know, where that money's gone or where it hasn't gone. And we're seeing the results of the way, um, yeah, the way that regulation was developed and the lack of hyperlocal voices in that debate kind of stands out in the results so far. Um, there are a handful of hyperlocal publishers that uh, were able to be um, represented in those discussions, but very few. And so um, Lena will be working with its members to look at whether there's an opportunity to participate in that kind of code moving forward or whether there's other ways that we need to be supporting hyperlocal publishers. Perry. One thing that I advocated for when the bargaining code was being created was to drop the threshold for revenue for inclusion from $150,000 a year to $75,000 a year. Because I think the legislation doesn't recognise that like we're talking about. There are so many one and two person outlets cropping up around Australia that have either minimal revenue or next to no revenue that just aren't being included in the legislation. Yes, there are some ancillary deals being struck. There are some grant programs available, but that's not guaranteed funding. And we know that the larger, more established and yet not always serving the community as well outlets are getting funding from sources like Facebook and Google and the federal government. And I hope that as this code develops or as policy develops, that hyperlocals will get taken care of just as well as their bigger, older cousins. I guess we're yet to see because the code's uh, quite new. We're yet to see what those deals um, represent in an ongoing way as well. Like a lot of them are kind of one-off payment arrangements uh, as far as I understand it. So I think there's a lot of conversation uh, to be had around what that code evolves into and how it includes different elements of the media sector. I think a lot of the policy was designed um, with putting some fences in place uh, to help identify what is media versus uh, what is, as um, Mark was talking about before, you know, what is a good karma network group on Facebook or any other kind of blog. I understand the need to define those kind of things, but I don't think the code as it's written currently has um, necessarily served hyperlocal publishers in the way that it needs to because of those kind of fencing arrangements. So that's a conversation that needs to be had. I'd just add also that um, I think federal government has made some very small forays into this area as well. Um, there was the Public Interest News Gathering Fund, which uh, I think was at the start of the pandemic. Um, and then there was another round of funding recently. But the problem with, uh, I think at this stage is that they really haven't, they haven't really picked up on the idea of supporting startups. Um, like Perry says, the thresholds, well, a similar, similar issue with thresholds, but also um, it's, uh, it's more about um, sustaining existing um, media companies, you know, through uh, basically subsidising their newsprint costs and things like that, rather than supporting startups. And I don't see any reason why we can't start to think of media as being a public good in the same way that we think of the arts and culture as being a public good and having um, a series of policies um, in the same way that we subsidise theatre companies and other artistic companies and organisations if they're delivering a public good like the media should be. Mm. There's some wonderful bits of policy in places like the UK where they fund journalists to cover the civic beat in particular local government areas. Um, and like you say, um, I think that so many of the government's policies have been a reaction to the fact that Nine and News Corp and other large companies' executives are in Canberra talking to MPs and ministers saying, oh, we're in trouble here, we need some money. Whereas 
Lena has been created and other organisations are being created as well to stand up for the rest of us who maybe aren't in that room and aren't part of those discussions. Yeah, the other thing is also, I think, um, I've worked in both regional media and suburban media over the years, uh, shows how long in the tooth I am. Another issue that I think um, suburban hyperlocal media are going to have to confront is that they're competing for advertising dollars if they ever get to that stage with metropolitan daily newspapers, while to an extent um, a town like Murray Bridge is its own discrete community um, and uh, the businesses serve that community and um, in, in, to that extent, uh, I think uh, regional and rural publications may have a little bit of um, a, a foot up that way. But I think it's really difficult for, fingers crossed, yeah, it's really difficult for in the suburban or metropolitan context to uh, generate that uh, that commercial revenue. And I think we've got to we've really got to also look at the the way that philanthropy is directed in Australia. Um, and uh, I think that's another that could be another thing that government could do would be able to create. Uh, form a tax break or some kind of um, concessional uh, donation or something like that for philanthropy towards media organisations. There are a whole range of different policy levers that we're seeing uh, being implemented around the world uh, that could potentially be adopted here in Australia and we're really interested in um, working with the government on the development of the news media assistance program at the moment which could potentially address some of those issues and looking at some of those regulatory changes around things like DGR status that could really have a significant impact here in Australia. A lot of people talk about subscription, but I think also the other thing about hyperlocal news, in, in, at least my philosophy, is that it has to be free and available to everybody. Um, you can't have paywalls for information which is, uh, you know, crucial public information and a public service. Um, and if people, you know, uh, want to set up a subscription, I think that's great. Uh, it's like community radio. Community radio is available to everybody. Um, I subscribe to community radio stations, but um, uh, it doesn't give me any uh, extra advantage. I just want to support the station out of the goodness of my heart, basically. We've talked about the support from governments and policies, but yes, the support of local communities is the crucial and foundational thing to to get your foot in the ground and, and to get these services to more ears, more eyes. Um, so I'm curious, we know that Australians are interested in local news. We've got the, the media research that backs this up. Australians like local news. But how do you go about engaging your community and building an audience when you're starting up as an independent local news service? Does being a local help in that? Uh, Perry, I'll go to you first. I probably cheated a bit in that respect in that I'd been at the local newspaper for about eight years before I launched Murray Bridge News. So I guess people knew me in the community. I'd maintained like a, like a personal professional journalist Facebook page that had a couple of hundred people following it. And so that's where I kind of made my big launch announcement and I have since converted that into a Murray Bridge News page. Um, but I think that just having that exi existing reputation in the community helped a lot. It helped to have been here for enough years that I guess when the crunch came, I was lucky enough to be the right person in the right place at the right time. Can you manufacture that without having lived in the community? I think you probably could in the right situations with the right experience behind you or with the right motivations. Um, but I guess it hasn't been my experience. It's hard to say. I hope that many more people give it a go and we can find out. Our community is quite... Uh, a unique community in some ways it's um 
It's about 60,000 people in Brunswick and it's commonly described as the most progressive or the, the People's Republic of Brunswick is how they often describe it. Um, like when we when we have an election, you know, it's not a fight between Liberal and Labor, it's a fight between Labor, the Greens, the Socialist Alternative and another Socialist Alternative. So it's, um, it's a very progressive community. Um, so I think for people who don't live in the community, not, you have to understand the, the community and I've been living here for about 15 years. Um, so when I started, I mean, really, it was just literally it was um, frustration at the lack of finding out about changes to my rubbish bin services and um, and also being sort of realising that despite living here for all these years, when lockdown came, I felt a real disconnection from my community. So really my audience to start with was just myself and I was just doing it for myself as I've um, sort of continued. People have started to um, get into it and um, and the audience has just grown naturally, but I haven't really... Um, really thought too hard about it apart from being honest and true to what the area represents um and you can see i mean it's amusing sometimes to see how the area is covered from outside the area um by people who don't really understand the unique culture that exists here you know it's a it's a, it's a an area with a um, long industrial working class history that was then become a big migrant um post-war migrant history and it's also very close to university so it's always had a very strong uh, progressive and artistic community as well so it's again it just goes back to being embedded and being part of the community. Finally do you believe hyperlocal news will become a growing part of the Australian media landscape? Is it here to stay? Claire I'll go to you first. Yes I do think it's a growing part of the media landscape and I think um you know, when we're talking about what's bringing audiences to hyperlocal publishers, there's nothing like being the only person reporting or the only group reporting on an issue to suddenly draw audience attention to it. We're seeing that in different spaces around the country all the time, really. So I think um, being there on the ground and kind of having that connection to local community, understanding uh, what that community is and the way that we're described, we're hearing there from Mark and Perry about the differences in their communities and the way that uh, they're communicating with their communities. When we're seeing that replicated in lots of different communities around the country, audiences are really responding positively to it. And I do think that that's got the potential for huge growth around the country. And Mark? As I've said before, I, firstly, I think for commercial and, and business reasons, um, the future is going to be in a lot of these communities hyperlocal because it just won't have that uh, commercial attraction for a big publisher. And, and also organisations like the ABC just can't be everywhere uh, and can't cover every community. And they're not interested in covering the changes to the rubbish bins collection service in Brunswick. Um, but that's a enormous interest to the people who live here but I think also um, as long as you've got someone like like me who uh, if I um, not doing it you know as long as there's someone who's uh, nosy and interested in what goes on around them and can string two words together I think you'll always have local hyperlocal media as well I think citizen journalism is a really um, strong thing as long as it's uh, conducted with the same ethics you know, the profession of journalism should have. And Perry? I think that people need to feel like they're part of a community, right? They, they might be part of a niche community, but people still need to feel like a part of the community where they live and work. And if they're going to have a community, they need to know what's happening in that community. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of people who happen to live in houses that are near each other. And I think we're living through this 
decade where we're finding that yes social media and the internet can keep us in touch with people around the world and around our cities and towns and countries but we can't trust an algorithm to tell us definitively here's what's happening in your town or in your suburb or city i think that curation of information is something which is going to continue to be important long into the future and i think that community-minded local journalists are going to be a big part of that. On that note, I'd like to thank Claire Stutchberry, Mark Phillips, and Perry Strathern for joining me on Fourth Estate. Thanks, Marlene. Thanks a lot for your time. Thanks very much. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is FourthEstateAU. Thanks to our executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. I'm Marlene Even. Thanks for listening.